Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounced on its point. Wow. The fates, the gods are with the gods. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. Bishop Michael Curry was best on ground with three votes for or for mine. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Emma Race. I'm Lucy Race. I'm Nicole Hayes. I'm Alicia sometimes wearing a pink bat on my head. It's always something. It's Felicity Race here. And I'm Kate Sear. Woohoo! <laughs> there she lives. Welcome Katie's back. back. Oh, Guess back. who's back? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. How are you, Dr. Kath? I'm all right. Um, good. Fresh after a holiday in... Vietnam. It's yeah, actually not. You feel but rubbish. But I actually don't do you? feel rubbish. Yeah, yeah. I feel I have a bit of ho- post-holiday blues, but that's all right. Mm. I'll push on. You're also on like the smallest chair <laughs> in the studio. I We've am. got her sitting on the kitty table, <laughs> and it's like hilarious. <laughs> I feel like a Smurf. You're gonna need to lean right into your microphone there. I will. And I will. Hello. And that'll teach you for going on holidays. You'll never go on holidays <laughs> again. Um. So that was a round of football that no one saw coming, or Ooh. did they? I don't know. Who wants to go first? Is anyone got anything positive to say about the round that oh, just was? I thought you asked who wanted to go first. I can't do both. No, you can't do both. <laughs> Felicity. I would say to be very positive that don't upsets make football interesting. Yes. There okay. you go. Put that sure. on That's a T-shirt. That's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really watch much. I actually had a migraine on Sunday afternoon and I had this terrible dream that Hawthorne lost to Brisbane. So. <laughs> oh, thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Look, I was thrilled to watch... Essendon finally get on yeah. the board. Um, that was an extraordinary match. Mm. Um, exciting in our household, as you would imagine. Um, and as much as it pains me, it's nice to see Brisbane have a little bit of success. Hodgie was too You should excited, see the looks I'm getting, though. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I'm under, I don't understand why you'd say it pains. Like, I understand why you'd say it pains you because Hawthorne lost. But I thought Brisbane had been playing some pretty good football. Yeah. And so I wasn't actually totally surprised mm. and I was happy for super fan Robin so congratulations yeah. Robin <laughs> yeah that's right um we had an IRL with Robin yesterday because she lives in my street and she got to meet Lucy and she was genuinely thrilled oh, of course hey, it was, Robin. It was oh, surprising for me to see <laughs> such <laughs> such thrill I was like it's just uh, no okay yeah. good go for it um that's rough I'm sorry love I'll tell you what's rough mm. we got a a lovely review this week might have been this week but I saw it this week I don't know anyway somebody we don't normally blow our own trumpet but I'm gonna blow it here because <laughs> this is pretty good we do play our own banjos boom tish um we metaphor for masturbating no Welcome. Okay. Hi, Alicia. Sandra Sully with the late news. <laughs> so a lovely it. person put a review up on iTunes and said that we wield the rough pineapple deftly when deserved. And I thought, that's pretty great, isn't it? 
Yeah. It's poetic. Did you I, like that one? I loved that one. Really I went back sweet. and had a look. That phrase um, is first recorded in about 1959. Of course you did. <laughs> and it's kind of a different phrase. It was always to get, the, you know, the, a raw deal, to get the rough end of the pineapple. So I really like the way the, the reviewer has used it in, in a different way. Kate? I think Can we'll be weaponising pineapples <laughs> and wielding them deftly <laughs> as we go forward. Well, talking about language, I wanted to have a um, return of Commentary Watch, which is a segment that I um, uh, love, of course, because I invented it and I think it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, as I said, I'm not at my best today. I'm going to do my best. Um, so some of our regular listeners will remember that last year we sort of started picking out intriguing and interesting phrases that are used in... Um, by commentators in footy. And when you start thinking about it, there's quite a number of very strange ones. Um, So we've previously been quite intrigued by the claim that certain players have a long leg and that got a run again on the weekend. Um, I also love when someone's got a knee or someone's got an Mm. ankle. Or groin. Um, Someone's got a groin. I always think I hope they have. But (laughs) what I realised on the weekend is that we have totally overlooked the fact that there are seemingly several footballers out there who have no left foot. Oh. <laughs> you'd think you'd notice yeah. that, you wouldn't you? you think you would notice that because yeah. that would seem to be a significant and important feature of the game. But um, the other thing that happened over the weekend, and we might talk about Carlton in a moment, is that um, we were led to believe that Carlton didn't turn up for that game. And I, this is something that seemingly happens multiple times a season, that a team just doesn't turn up. Oh, and given this, I, well, I think this is exactly, that's my point, Alicia. I'm wondering why there isn't more attention given to this fact. <laughs> it seems um, like a fairly basic thing to do is to show up, right? It is, it is. And there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of discussion this season already about whether the umpires are properly enforcing the rules. And, and if so, I want to know why it is that Rule 10.7.1 of the AFL laws of the game Legally hasn't, been, <laughs> hasn't, been, um, hasn't been imposed. And that, of course, is the rule which requires a team to be declared to have officially forfeited the match if, and I quote, it is unable or it fails, refuses or neglects to commence play at the scheduled starting time. Yeah. Speaking of umpires, I'd like to know where they put their whistle when they put it away. Oh, oh, I know. Oh, yes. Yes. In their pockets. Those shots are very <laughs> tight. <laughs> That's what the pockets for. He's put his whistle away. I find that really interesting that you should bring that up, Kate, because the other day I said to Andy, my husband, who does follow Carlton, and I know that they haven't been going that well, um, that I said, do you think it would be worth it if there was the facility to forfeit a game so that you could just keep fresh legs? <laughs> and he said, that is so disrespectful. And I was like, I wasn't attributing it to a particular team. But, you know, we do that in other games, you know. They've been talking um, about a mercy rule too. Yeah. Should we Fremantle do it once? <laughs> I think it's a um, – I think – that I can see Clarko doing it down the track. You know, Ooh, save, save some legs. Yeah, why not? And have a week off. Well, mm. interestingly, can I just say, when I looked at the rules of the game, you can actually have as few as 14 players on the field and I think even less with permission of the umpires. So it is so it is possible that you will show up, a team will turn up, but you might just field 12. <laughs> Kate, <laughs> should, we, you know? should we call a hospital? Because some don't bring their heart on the, game, the, oh, on the day. Yeah. They haven't got the heart. Mm-hmm. Their heart's not in it. So where's yeah, their heart? Where is it? They, these are all the big questions that you, you yeah. only see dealt with here on I the other side. I think someone had their same hamstring this week as last year. The same, the very <laughs> the same, same hamstring. hamstring. Yeah. Um, Robert Walls was, um, he's been kind of vocal about his beloved 
footy club? Well, he's been bereft. I mean, on the weekend, a 109-point loss to Melbourne. And good on Melbourne. They really showed some promise and promise that we'd been sort of begging to see earlier in the year. And I think they're doing really well. But... Uh, Carlton legend Robert Walls fears his beloved club could lose a generation of supporters should the Blues fail to show promise. Um, besides the on-field disaster, Walls said the most concerning aspect of the day for the Blues was the army of young Carlton fans that left during the second half as the Dees ran away with the game. As the Ds uh, ran away with the spoon. Yeah, that's right. They <laughs> ran away. We should have called the police because they took the game and they left, they the, left, with, they the left with the game. But, I mean, it's that thing of can your team getting thrashed throughout a season make you lose heart? I don't know because so many people I know, it doesn't matter. They go year after year. Dad's a St Kilda supporter. He's stuck through thick and thin. That's what the true fans do. It's that eternal question, isn't it, if you – does it make the highs higher if you sort of stay there for the lows? Yeah, Richmond. Yeah, yeah. and the Bulldogs mm. when they won yeah. their premiership. It's hard earned, isn't it? Interestingly, um, David Rhys-Jones, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you guys saw this on Facebook, he was in a Facebook fans group, on uh, a Carlton fans group, and he basically posted this massive, like, diatribe saying, I used to think this page was for true blue Carlton supporters, not a bunch of whingers. None of you have played the game or have any real knowledge of the sacrifices and dedication made by a lot of good people, but are self-appointed experts. After the last couple of weeks of bitching and moaning, I'm happily going to unfollow this thread. Look up the meaning of supporter, some of you fickle keyboard warriors. I'm sure in a couple of years when we have 50-plus games into these kids and start climbing up the ladder, you so-called experts will be claiming some sort of justification knowing it would have happened. I will continue to support the club, its players, coaches and administration, not take the easy way out of throwing insults and derogatory comments at good people who are doing the best to get this club at 17th Premiership. See ya. How do you like wow. them apples? Yeah. Wow. How do you like them apples? You can I pack a punch that. Bit. I actually love that. I don't think yeah. we see. Mm. Um, I think a lot of former players and current players are really passive to the stuff that we see on social media. And I've long thought. I, I remember thinking this when um, there was a few trades going on between the women's um, teams and and women were arriving at new clubs, and people were quite rude about some of the women. And I thought I looked up one guy that was just you know, sprouting absolute like crap and nonsense and really hurtful stuff about a player that the team had just acquired. And he had a picture of a for, of an absolute superstar from the AFLM from his team in his profile pic. And I thought, God, I'd love it if that player just got on there and said Scored like, him. hey, buddy, yeah. take down my picture in your profile if you're going to speak like that. Because mm. nothing would put you quite in your place, mm. like mm. getting a spray from someone that you respect like that, don't yeah. you reckon? Cyril Rioli telling me I'm not funny. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's his area of expertise. Yeah, yeah. I've got um, I've got two questions for you about the David Restraints. One is why were you in the Carlton Facebook forum? <laughs> Research. What's going on in your household? Um, no, the other one's more of a comment. I, I think it's really great to see ex-footballers talking uh, with expertise on areas that they're experts in, and they should. And Shouldn't we see more of that? Oh. I do love seeing the passion, though. No, I and do I know. Just spouting I know. the tradition. I mean, even when they they retire, they seem to continue with the company line and keep that sort of neutral language. And he's just gone off. I think, I it's, think it's lovely. Yeah, me too. Another ex-player is now the um, the head of umpiring, Peter Schwab, and he came out with something interesting this week where. Um, he tweeted, the dumbest football observation is the lopsided free kick count means the umpires weren't good or it's not fair. Mm. 
And I, I could not agree more. You know, I'll give you that hallelujah now. Oh, 100%. I was, um, you know, when you watch a game, there's got to be other statistics that are a lot more telling. And, for example, in the, I think it's the Essendon-Geelong game, it might have been the last quarter when Geelong took their first mark inside 50. Um, now, that's probably a more telling statistic about mm. why your team didn't win yep. than a free kick count. Mm. Um, but, gee, it's one of those things that really grates me because yeah. I, I feel like... If you're making the play and you're in front, you're going to get more free kicks. Absolutely. But also, if you're not executing properly, you're more likely to have free kicks. Fringe, so if yeah. you're playing shit. Well, yeah, yeah, and if you're not tackling properly or if you're second mm. to the ball, mm. it's, unhelpful. it's a really unhelpful way to try and critique umpiring. People do love giving the, um, the, a bit of a Bronx cheer when they hear the, when they see the stat go up, though. Mm. I do mm. enjoy that. On a grammatical point... Does anyone else have trouble now when you read a tweet with the word dumb in it that you automatically hear Trump's voice? Because you know how <laughs> half of his this tweets... Is grammatical? How half of his tweets are, oh. that's dumb foreign policy or that's Sad. dumb something. And so I read, you know, Peter Trump saying the dumbest football observation. I'm like, oh, no. The dumbest football. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I have steered away from exclamation marks since yeah. Donald Trump because I feel like there is... He's ruined, He's ruined, ruined them for everyone. Sad. Did anyone have something on Eddie Betts before I we did. move on? What? <laughs> He's did a legend. Have? I just couldn't find it. Well, I've just – those couple of goals on the boundary he kicked, I just think, you know, he was basically – if anyone saw the Adelaide um, Western Bulldogs game on Friday night, it was basically a waiting pool. And he <laughs> it was. And one of them was, was, a, was a set shot and the other was on the boundary, uh, was on the run. But both of them were opposite sides of the ground with opposite foots. Mm. Foots. <laughs> <laughs> There's my so exclamation mark. He has a left foot he and has, he has a right foot. He has both. Yeah, who'd have thunk? Um, and they were, I mean, the wind was cyclonic. It was a ridiculous, neither one of those goals should have happened, but they did. It was wet and wild. It was amazing. <laughs> but also his skills, you would have thought it was, you know, Queensland and the perfect, and perfect yeah. sunny weather. Um, but Adam Cooney got a little carried away. After before he kicked Betts kicked the first of those stunners, he promised he'd do a nude lap around Australia if Betts gets it. So that's something to look forward to, people. Ooh. I don't know when oh. that's going to happen. Oh, no, there is not enough zinc cream in the world. No, don't bet against Eddie Betts. There was actually another um, challenge like that this week where on the um, the Hernan Crawford podcast. Oh. I think um, Crawford had said, um, "If Essendon beats Geelong, you can make me do whatever you like." And so they took Should their we... time and they came up with the uh, the solution. So Shane Crawford's been to Essendon training this week um, and was required to train with the team. Oh, <laughs> fully kitted up in his Hawthorne stuff, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's melee. There's been a lot of trade talk this week because the countdown was on to the AFLW trade period um, opening and shutting. And North Melbourne has been copying a lot of heat for what they have um, managed to pull off, Katie. Yeah, they have. So, um, as you said, Emma, the expansion club signing period has just been completed and there's been heaps of player movement. I won't go through all of it because there's um, a number of players who've been signed and um, moved around. Um, But just some of the notable examples, first of all. Um, Phoebe McWilliams has gone from the Giants to Geelong. Emma Carney, who, of course, won the um, Player of the Year Award, she's gone from the Western Bulldogs to North Melbourne. Melissa Hickey, who's a favourite um, here on the pod, she's gone from Melbourne to Geelong, which was a, a move that I think a few people expected, given that she has a family history at Geelong. Mo Hope uh, from Collingwood, also to North Melbourne. Caitlin Ashmore from Brisbane, also to North Melbourne. And 
as you said, Emma, North Melbourne have copped a bit of heat, because, but they also seem to be the big winners, I think, out of this period. They've picked up uh, Emma King, Jenna Bruton, Jess Duffin, Jazzy Garner, Talia Randall, Jamie Stanton and Daria Bannister, just to name a few. And um, on the flip side, of course, I think Brisbane have been pretty much decimated. Mm. Um, there's a lot of Brisbane supporters who I think are really disappointed with the fact that a few of their players have been poached. Including me. Um, mm. Including our very own Nicole Hayes, who um, is a big fan of the Lions. But what was really interesting, I had a look at the rules for the expansion process um, and how it was supposed to work. And what the expansion rules say is that expansion clubs may make an offer to any 2018 AFLW player within the expansion club signing period. The player's existing club could make an offer to them as well. So say, for example, that Geelong made an offer to Melissa Hickey, um, Melbourne could have made an offer to her and and um, may well have um, in order to try and match it or retain them. But the really interesting part was that the rules also said um, that expansion clubs can contract a maximum of four players from each existing AFLW club. And I quote, this is the key part, that the AFL expects that every Victorian club will lose four players for the purpose of expansion. The AFL does not expect interstate clubs to lose as many or any players for the purposes of expansion. Hmm. There's kind of this weird aspirational state that they don't wrong, expect you to lose yeah. any. Um, well, a number of the Melbourne clubs did lose four. Collingwood lost four. The Bulldogs lost four. Melbourne lost four. But Brisbane lost four. Um, the Giants lost two. And I think that Adelaide and Fremantle haven't lost anyone and that Carlton lost two. Hmm. Um, so it was just was a very strange approach, um, I think, by the AFL. And so subsequently what's happened is that the AFL has announced a series of compensation picks and they've announced how the draft is going to work. Um, Geelong gets the first couple of draft picks and North won't get a pick until the end of the first round. So I think North have effectively been penalised for doing so well out of this period. Um, Brisbane only get the ninth draft pick and that is... I think partly because they were the grand finalists this year. Um, so I don't begrudge North at all. I think they've done a great job and, and congratulations to them. But it just seems to me like the AFL banked on interstate clubs not having um, players poached and that they got it wrong. And so my question really is why was this um, assumption expressed aspirationally by the AFL? Did, you know, did they hope to protect interstate clubs from having multiple players poached? And if so, why wasn't there a, a firm rule against mm. it? Why It's kind of like saying, you know, I've made a whole bunch of chocolate brownies and I'm going out for the day and when I get home I expect that they'll all be there and that <laughs> no one's eaten them and, of course, Fido eats they them. come home. So it just feels like that the, the AFL has once again misread the AFLW landscape and probably wanted those interstate clubs to retain talent and they've lost talent mm. and I think it's a big problem. I think where it's tricky is that some of the talent is actually from other states originally. So banking on the fact that they're going to stay is, is not necessarily something that you can do. I saw a tweet this week about Brisbane losing that many players and a fan was feeling really upset about the loss, especially to of players to North. And she raised the point that she thought the AFL was actually ruining the comp- uh, competition by the way that it's expanding. And part of me understands where she's coming from, but the other side of the issue is that growth is always going to be accompanied by pain. And I think 
we were really surprised when North Melbourne didn't. Yeah. You know, North Melbourne, a team that's had such a long association with Melbourne Uni and women's football didn't get a team initially. So I'm not at all surprised to see muggers going back to play for North. And I'm not surprised to see that North Melbourne is actually a destination club. I also note that there's players with a link to Tasmania who've gone to North. So I think it's all understandable. One of the things I noted, like, I don't know if you guys did the same thing, but during season two, I was really aware that this was a moment in time and that people that we saw playing in certain jumpers, I had a real sense this might be the only time this, you know, these few games might be the only time we see them like this because things are going to change. And it reminds me of a whole lot of other forms of art or creativity where people come together and create something really quite magnificent, but it's transient. And I think the issue that we're having with this is that we're used to clubs having this long history and people stay, but the landscape's different. It's a it's a time of flux. It's a time of change. And I think we actually just have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Perfectly it comes, said. It comes down to words too. What does expect mean? Exactly. Do you know, it's yeah, so interesting. I think it was a, Emma mm. yesterday gave me the heads up that the new Revisionist History podcast had come out and it's all about the importance of getting the uh, the punctuation and the words right. And, um, you know, it, it pulls some holes in the um, the US Constitution. Um, that could <laughs> because really, of a semicolon? A semicolon in the wrong place means Texas could actually be five separate um, states um, at the, the flick of a switch. and um, Spoiler warning. It was in the description of the episode. But, um, but it is, you know, it's interesting. And, and I wonder whether the AFL would have had such a um, laissez-faire approach to writing the rules of the rest of the game or whether they, you know, it's, it's a very casual wording of, oh, we expect you'll all do what we expect you'll do and... Um, it, it just doesn't. There's no such thing as um, a non-competitive uh, trade period or draft mm. period. You can't you can't ask people to you know invoke um, spirit of the game mm. when you're setting up a club. And I think that um, what we all this is what I now I'm starting to believe is that season one AFLW was an extraordinary romantic period mm-hmm. of our lives and there was a lot of dreams. But I've seen in the eyes of a lot of players up close that this um, that progress is wearing them thin and a lot of the women that we celebrated in season one and who lived the highest of the highs have now fallen um, into kind of the the onto into the cusp of progress mm. and kind of down into this kind of chasm between what was season 1 and what's going to be the next 10 to 15 years so i would say yes north melbourne enjoy it and make mm. hay while the sun shines because there's more licenses coming there's teams upon you and and then there's also women that have been coming up all the way through the academies so it's going to get crunched from both ends so every season is going to be exceptionally different um, and I don't think that there's no way that we can know what the landscape's going to look like, what the teams are mm. going to field each year. It's going to be different every time. So that's why I guess it's really hard when you want to stick fat with a jumper. And I know, yeah. you know, we've got a supporter who follows us, Stephen Barris-Miller, who jumped off one team and went to another team and he's following a jumper. I'm like, Barris-Miller, you're going to have to change jumpers every year. <laughs> but maybe that's what you're going to have to do for AFLW. Mm. And this is the challenge, I think, too, is that, you know, we wanted a professional competition and there are commercial imperatives at play that perhaps some of the stalwarts who'd really fought for this hadn't perhaps 
perhaps expected. And that is going to be a constant negotiation, given that it started largely as a commercial enterprise, or at least the AFL eventually worked out that it could be one. Yeah, and I was going to say, on the flip side, as you said, Emma, the the real plus is that it does mean that um, the competition feels very wide open. And, um, you know, we've had two different premiers in two years, albeit in an eight-team competition that's a fledgling competition. But I feel like North Melbourne have put themselves in a very good position next year. So have Geelong. You know, we could have another premier the third year around. And so that kind of makes it exciting too. And that that's... Um, that's something to look forward to. I feel like Lucy's missed the opportunity to go with her musical theatre analogy here too because <laughs> in some respects the AFLW season is like putting on a production. That's you know, kind of what I was thinking of when I just, said, just yeah, didn't want to I just didn't want to talk about but it, it again. Is, you know, you get, everybody comes in, they play their role and then they leave and the next yeah. year we put yeah. it on again and yeah. sometimes there's different people in the different roles. And, and there's real beauty in that transience yeah. as well. It, well it's quite precious. That's the value of Banksy's, you know, graffiti is that, you know, it it's goes on a wall and many uh, councils have gone in to try to protect it and Banksy's like, no, the point of it is it's meant to be graffitied over. Like, that's what happens with art. Well, season three, there's going to be a thriller, there's going to be a butler and uh, <laughs> we won't know what happens till the very and end. A and a musical number. This all dovetails into something I really wanted to talk to you guys about Um an article that I saw in Fairfax Media over the weekend by Conrad Marshall. Um, he wrote a piece called How Vulnerability Became Sport's Winning Weapon. Did you read it? Mm, it was brilliant. So really it's a long-form article examining, and I quote here, the biggest buzzword in professional sport, vulnerability. He goes through lots of examples. Um, probably most famous for our, our listeners is um, Richmond and the role of the Triple H sessions where they talked about hardship, highlight and hero. Um, and the role that that perhaps played in um, them finding ultimate success. But it also looks at the way that this um, movement is kind of occurring in other sports like NBA, NFL, NRL. At the heart of it is the idea that in embracing vulnerability and your own imperfections, you allow for better connections within teams. I highly recommend going and watching Brene Brown's famous TED Talk. Now, I'm late to this. I've been meaning to watch it for a really long time. Over 34 million people have watched it and it's absolutely fascinating. What she does is at the heart of what she talks about is um, breaking down the characteristics of people who feel worthy of connection and she calls them wholehearted people. And there are four characteristics. One is courage, but it's not courage like putting your head over the ball. It's that courage to be authentic, to be your absolute self and to be um, who you are with all your imperfections. She, the second point is compassion to yourself and to other people. And, you know, as part of that is acceptance. Thirdly, she talks about connection, being connected to people. And fourth, her point is um, people who are wholehearted are open to being vulnerable, which means that understanding that things aren't always going to go your way, like there's going to be tough times and accepting that and dealing with it. What I really like about this change coming into sport and this way of thinking coming into mainstream professional sport is that Firstly, I think it's going to lead to much happier, healthier athletes like when they're on the field but also post-career. But secondly, like we've seen that culture shifts at professional sport level invariably seeps into grassroots sport and culture generally. So think about this message going out to people that being your authentic self is important, accepting your imperfections, being kind to yourself and others, encouraging meaningful connections, accepting your vulnerabilities, which means 
accepting the uncomfortable, that your favourite player might be playing for someone else, that your team might get beaten by 100, that you might ask a girl out and she might say no. (laughs) And if you can then accept those rejections and those failures, what I think we're going to see is hopefully a shift in some of those toxic cultures that do none of us a service. And that's what they're teaching in schools at the mm-hmm. moment. It's a, it's even a subject matter is vulnerability. So oh, wow. yeah, uh, in primary school. So they're looking at the ways in which that you can deal with who you are. And, and if you, you're not fearful, then you're full of love. Yeah. I think we've seen like at a really micro level, you've seen the difference in players who kick for goal and beat themselves up and those who kick for goal and miss and laugh at themselves. Mm. And you know, just looking at it objectively, the people who are easier on themselves and can have a laugh, you know, you just know they're going to be healthier all-round people at the end of this this game. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember um, when Hawthorne lost the grand final to Sydney in 2012, which um, as, you know, listeners who remember that grand final will remember was a very close-fought um, grand final and, and, you know, Hawthorne sort of devastated. you bring it up. <laughs> Talking. <laughs> Hawthorne were devastated at that loss. But the thing that always sticks in my mind, actually, is what Alistair Clarkson said in the press conference afterwards. Um, and he said, look, you know, we're really disappointed. We've lost a grand final and it was a grand final we were favourites to win. But we're keeping things in perspective because earlier this week in Melbourne, a, a woman by the name of Jill Maher was mm. raped and murdered. Mm. And he also mentioned, I think, maybe that his brother-in-law had died of cancer or his brother, um, a family member anyway. And he said, look, in the, in the end of, at the end of the day, you know, this is not that big a deal and that's the message I've passed on to the players. And um, actually they talk a little bit about that in a book that um, Michael Gordon wrote about those Hawthorne years called Playing to Win. And Hawthorne, of course, then went on to win three grand finals in the years after. And I, I think that that, is a significant, that has to be a significant part of it, kind of keeping things in perspective, knowing that it's okay mm. to, to lose. And Clarko mm. being so upfront about his feelings and emotions and what really matters in the world afterwards. It's funny, um, this is a complete, just going on complete tra- um, tangent here, but when you just said Jill Ma's name and I think about her pretty much every time we walk into the ABC and we've never talked about that, mm. um, but, you know, you've brought up her name and I'm automatically tearing up and that was a story that really affected a lot of people who live mm. in this town and I just thought, well, what a moment to just pay respects and say this was her workplace and we are honoured to be in here and we never forget her. And um, so thanks for actually reminding me of that and to speak out about that as well, Katie. Um, I found that really um, full on that article really great and I thought Mm. there's no one who personifies it better than Bob Murphy and that everyone calls him a renaissance man and that they talk about how he is such a different footballer to the footballers that we've seen um, in the past and it makes me feel really hopeful for the future because he's someone who really does speak out and mm. speak up and I actually think um, Patrick Dangerfield's getting there too mm. you know I think Luke Beveridge Luke Beveridge yeah. Luke Ablett yeah Patrick and Hill. also even yeah. just that relationship between Koch and, and um, Dusty. Dusty you know yeah. that, that whole kind of opening up to that male friendship thing and, and being vulnerable in that way but do you remember when um, you know it was I think last year when Isaac Smith had that kick for goal and missed, and yes. he, yes, we do. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, yep, we do. And he didn't look the way that people Expected. thought he should look. Yeah, um, and there was a lot of discourse around that, and I find that's really interesting because that's kind of the intersection of where people who are living this kind of mantra and 
people who aren't, and I think you often see that in social media. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but I just, I really, when I read all of that, I just kept coming back to some of the bigger stories that we're seeing um, that are touching on issues around toxic masculinity, including, you know, school shootings and, mm. and other horrific events, and thinking if, if this is a movement that is going to seep out into society, then we're all going to be better for it. That's true. Um, can I just quickly t- touch on something? We spoke to Angie Green um, from Stand Up Events last week on this program and full disclosure, she I would adopt her if I could. She's mm-hmm. um, a sister from another family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you caught up with that. She was on AFL 360 and she um, was asked a question about how Footy Classified, which is another program, had been handling discussion around trans athletes and this is obviously what she deals in every day and she basically said, you know, I think you need to look, use your platform wisely and she said you can have your own opinions but you can't have your own facts. And it was aimed, I think, at some stuff that had been written by Chris Judd and spoken about by Chris Judd and this week on Footy Classified, um, Chris Judd came out um, with the support of the team on Footy Classified and they basically, um, purpose, were purposefully ambiguous and in about um, a meeting that um, Angie had set up between Chris and Hannah Mouncey and, um, and because of that it's discredited or Angie feels that it has discredited her name and the name of stand-up events and I was thinking about when she was on AFL 360 I thought the most pertinent thing that she had said that was really wise was use your platform wisely and in seeing um, Chris Judd peddle this kind of fake news from the Channel 9 pulpit with his white male privilege megaphone to crush an organisation that he was formerly an ambassador of because he was terrified about his, him being um, made to look incorrect on some things, mm. um, I just thought that it sh- it demonstrated the kind of thing that you don't see at the tribunal. You see people go to the AFL tribunal and cover up for people who did bad things because you want them to play. It wasn't sportsmanlike. It wasn't, I didn't think, it was a very good use of a really enormous mm. platform, I thought, for a man who's talking a lot about how he thinks it's an unfair unfair competition to have a transgender woman um, playing against cis women, I thought I, that's probably the most unfair fight that I've seen um, this year in football. Is him taking on? Yeah, the, the, the challenge was it was all came down to this idea that um, Judd had written this article that was presented in a, in a way that was supposed to suggest it was balanced, um, but that Angie's concern was that she he had literally never spoken to Hannah Mouncey or indeed consulted with the trans community at all in writing that, which seemed an obvious om- uh, omission, which she raised on the 360 um, interview. Um, the question on F- Footy Classified was he was asked if he'd met Hannah Mouncey and he said yes because in the fallout from that um, that article and the fact that he hadn't, there were, and despite many efforts by Angie in the past to try to set up that meeting, um, he then then went about went ahead and actually did meet with her. So he was able to say yes to that question only because it was a partial truth. He hadn't actually met with her before the um, conversation, before the article, before the many times he stu- he has um, a, a, you know written a, about the um, transgender issue. It allowed him to, to tell some of the truth, but not all of it. And it's very frustrating to see how that was served up to him by Caro and Hutchie in different ways so that he could avoid revealing the whole truth and still look and still discredit Angie 
in a really unfair and actually um, disingenuous way. It was very frustrating to watch and it was very poor journalism. He seems really concerned with the fact that he thinks that he's um, speaking a truth that needs to be spoken and, and everyone is entitled to have their say and that's completely fine. I'm not trying to squash that at all Mm. Um, and he does have his say and he has enormous platforms and he has enormous privilege by being a Brownlow medalist and a footballer in this town. He has a huge megaphone and he has said he said on um, Footy Classified you know they've all been coming for me and coming out for me and stuff and I actually scrolled through his Twitter feed and what I have seen when what I have seen demonstrated is people who have actually gone back to him and point by point Mm. taken him on and said this study that you um, were referring to was actually not in humans, it was in rats. And this other study was about 15-year-olds, about um, adolescent bodies. It wasn't about adult bodies. And they've actually given him food for thought. And I understand that it might not be nice to have those things pointed out to you when that's your belief. But on the flip side, when he puts an article up, I go to Hannah's Twitter mm. feed and it's death threats and it's threats against her safety. Yeah. And that's not... That's not a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. No. One thing that has been so shocking the last couple of weeks is we have seen people brawling at the football and and I don't I hate it when people make the jokes and they say I thought this was only at soccer and stuff like that because we have to own this. Mm. This is on our code. This is what's happening in the outer, Nicole. Yeah, there was a couple of incidents on the weekend that were particularly um, unattractive at the Collingwood St Kilda match at Docklands. There was a brawl, a really ugly brawl in the EJ Witten bar that went on for like a minute, minute and a half, and uh, before security arrived, uh, secure two security guards are like really not, um, not a. a well, proportional response. No, <laughs> um, glasses were smashed, tables and and stools turned over. There were kids there. It was really, really horrible to see, um, and you know, apparently all sparked by comments about the 2010 grand final. Mm. You know, the Saints were playing well in this moment of the game, and it, you know, comments were if only they had done that in 2010. Ha ha. And of course, you know, as anyone would think. Chaos breaks out. Um, I'm not really sure what prompted that, apart from the alcohol aspect, maybe. But you know that the the aggro in some of the um, fan behaviour at the moment is really appalling. Earlier, there'd been a bunch of Collingwood fans who had assaulted a Saints fan on their own. People did try to intervene, but you know when you've got a group like that and all lick it up, it's really, really um, a, a scary and confronting scene. Um, there were going to be investigations by the AFL and the police, and both clubs have said that they will ban members. But this is becoming an almost weekly thing, mm. and it's just really it doesn't belong in the game at all. And nobody nobody thinks it's a good idea. So I'm not sure what the answer is, but um, it needs to be looked at. It's too common now. Yeah. My um my 11-year-old was at the Essendon game and he with his dad, and he said to me, um, he said, oh, there was a, a fight near us in the crowd. And I said, oh, was it really close? And... And he sort of pointed out the distance of our house. You know, it was that far away. And I said, oh, so was it far enough away that you weren't worried? And he looked at me and goes, no, I was worried. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't have to be next to the fight to, no. for it to make you feel anxious. He also pointed out that he, he it really cemented for him he's not going into the medical profession because the blood made him feel sick. Yeah, so enough. Good to know that early. Yeah. 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 It's, well, it's interesting if we come back to the discussion we were having earlier, Lucy, about vulnerability and keeping things in perspective and and so on. And, and Alicia, you've talked about this on on this show as well. Like, I mean, I love footy as much as anybody, but 
Christ's sake, keep it in perspective. <laughs> yeah, don't you know what I mean? Be a dick. Don't yeah, be a dick. Exactly. Is this where players can use their voice too? You I know, wondered that. I mean, yes. I, I know we, sometimes we see those pre, um, pre-recorded messages before the game about, you know, everybody play nice and be respectful. But is there a, is there a bigger platform or is there a bigger way that we can get players, I guess, um, you know, using their influence on – because – Maybe yeah. that's all that these people are going to listen to. I don't know. You saw an interesting one with Eastern Wood this weekend. Yeah. Well, the Eastern Wood one, you know, 20 years ago, we all used to lean over the fence and try and pat a player on the back mm. if they ran past. Um, you know, we used to run on the field when the siren went and tried, you know, would try and get out there to, to you know, to put your hands on and pat everybody on the back. Um, but this week, Eastern Wood was... Um, he was lining up and he was um, slapped on the bum by a opposition fan um, who sort of leant over the fence and did it. Um, and it, I guess that reignited the, the zero tolerance um, debate that there is now, that it, there can't be any grey area. There can't be, oh, it was only a tap. Because, yeah, it, it, a tap on the bum doesn't hurt, but pouring a beer on a player probably doesn't hurt either. So do we let that go? Um, mm. You know, what was interesting was seeing how many ex-players who are now commentators like Nick Rewalt came out and um, declared it, this is unacceptable in someone's workplace. Yeah. And I think that Fair language enough. has really changed now. Yeah, Eastern Wood said it too. Did you hear <coughs> yeah, what he did. said? Yeah. He said, um, my preference would be to be able to go to work and not get slept on the ass by a complete stranger, which I think is a fairly I reasonable response. I think we all, we're all like on board that. with that. Yeah, I think exactly. So. so fans don't touch players. Players don't touch umpires. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And fans don't beat each other up. Fans don't lean over the fence and yell abuse, and especially when your face is on TV because (laughs) everyone's going to see it. No, do do it, especially if your face is on TV, (laughs) so we know who it was. Mm -hmm. Instead of some bar over some old grand final. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's so weird. And I I think you're right, and I'm glad that Eastern Wood brought that up and, and said it like that. I've really changed my mind. I think I've said it here before. You know, I know Chris Lane. Um, Chris Lane. He's on your mind. <laughs> he's, on, he's always on my mind. Um, I know Will Langford did the kiss. And at the time I was like that cheeky minx. But then I'm like, no, actually, no, I wouldn't no. want to turn up to work and be kissed by someone just, you know, walking past. Oh, no. I didn't actually know. Oh, God. Can I'm I glad just... you mentioned that because I was about to come and play <laughs> one on you. No, I'm fine with you. I'm fine As with you. As a side comment, the other debate I think that's come up this week and it's come out of rugby league is this idea of if you injure someone significantly, should not the penalty be you're out for the same amount of time as the player you've injured and then your penalty starts because there were some horrific injuries that's come out of one of the games. And, you know, a Storm player got two weeks for fracturing the eye socket of a guy who's going to be out for at least six. You know, I think that it's only fair that you don't get to play for those six. It's a really interesting concept. Um, Can we take that to Mr P? Wait, do that. Who's Mr. P for rugby? It's the man in the vault. You know, it's the dude. Mr. V. Big brother. <laughs> yeah, big brother. <laughs> Someone let us know. Yeah, Someone Mr. tell Bolt. us. Yeah, exactly. We're joined today by uh, Sam Cooney, who runs the independent small book press Brow Books and is a publisher of quarterly literary magazine The Lifted Brow. He's publisher in residence at RMIT, teaches at several universities and is a freelance writer, editor and literary critic. We also have Kirby Fenwick, who's a writer from regional Victoria, the creator of the AFLW audio documentary, The First Friday in February. She's written for Girls Play Footy, Writer's Block and the UNESCO Melbourne City of Literature Office and co-hosts the podcast Literary Cannonball. Um, Sam, you're part of the team that put together this new book, um, Balancing Acts, Women in Sport. Can you tell us a little bit about the impetus to to come up with this this time around? Yeah, sure thing. So as publisher... 
I will definitely not take credit for a bulk of the work. We have two editors, two excellent editors who don't live in Melbourne and so can't be on the podcast, uh, Justin Wolfers and Aaron Riley, who were the people who commissioned and edited these works. It was originally Justin's idea. Justin's a real sports fan, huge aficionado, an ardent feminist, and, and he was seeing you know, a lack of space for serious dialogue and, and, and interrogation of what's going on and you know, the wide, wonderful, weird, often world of women's sport that's happening around us at the moment. And um, last year, he, as an online editor at the time, he wanted to put together a series of online writing, so he was wanting to have a piece a day for a week, so five pieces, put a call out, we put a call out through social media and all the usual, and we had this overwhelming um, response. So Justin sort of turned to me at the time and said, this is so great, maybe we can do two weeks. And I said, Justin, do you know we've started publishing books? Maybe this could be a book. And, he, and his eyes lit up. And so we kind of said yes to the five pieces and did the online series, but also at the same time told those five people and about 15 or so others that we would love to work with their pitches and, and eventual pieces if we could and make a book. And also then we looked at where the gaps were and started commissioning work. And uh, and then that, you know, as a book it takes a while, maybe that was 18 months ago. And mm. and today, actually, the official publication date is the day um, it's today, Tuesday, and uh, and we are so excited about it. Very cool. Oh, I mean, it's just come together so beautifully in that it covers a wide landscape of uh, writers and topics. Um, I liked the play of format as well, where you've got some script and some changes. Do you want to tell us a bit about the the coming together of the book? Yeah, I'm glad you liked the the, the different formats. Um, our typesetter didn't at the time. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, I can understand. Them. Yeah. So um, we have in the book, we have some pretty straightforward, you know, essayistic pieces. We have pieces that are, um, you know, more more academic maybe, but then some that are way more personal. But we also have pieces that there's one that's a, a very long Facebook chat and, and that goes for sort of 50 or 60 pages, including all the icons and everything. And the idea was... We want to represent, it was first and foremost, whatever the authors most wanted to do. And that's always great to be able to stick to their preferences and, and, and their storytelling techniques, but also that these dialogues and conversations happen in different spaces. And if the book was in all in one note or if all the pieces were the same length and of the same kind of voice, whether it was all first person and personal or all removed and third person, I think it would be kind of one note and that, that would be fine, but it wouldn't be representative of the conversations and the different high and low levels of conversation that are happening by highbrow and lowbrow, if you want to use those terms, conversations that are happening in, in, the, in the kind of different communities that we, we are in. If the Outer Sanctum's uh, messages were released to the public, I think mm, it would be, be 20, 20 volumes, wouldn't it? Oh, there's that too. <laughs> you went with that. Um, so did you notice there are any consistent themes that came across throughout the stories and, and in some of the um, sports that you included include ballet and chess and yoga. So yeah. there's a very loose definition there, but any consistent themes that you identified? Uh, I'm sure all the, the usual ones around sport generally about, uh, about the love and joy and pain and heartbreak that sport brings anybody who is either, and this, this, this book features writers who are, who are athletes and or spectators and or in Cult, the sporting culture in some way, shape or form. So it has those different points of view. It's not just from people who play or not just from people who watch, but a kind of combination. There is obviously the very obvious theme of lack of representation and, you know, Kirby's piece very much dives into that. And, we, you know, I, I, I loved learning. Like one of the greatest gifts I think a writer can give is the gift of, you know, the education and, and bringing new knowledge into the 
into the world of the reader. And so I feel like, you know, the world got a bit bigger when I, when I read Kirby's pieces as well as several others where I, I learned about histories um, that I should already have known about, being a, an AFL football fan um, for, for, for my whole life. And I guess, like, the themes of wanting to fit in, lack of opportunity, and then perseverance through that lack of opportunity into finally either forcing opportunity or, or finding opportunity in places that are being newly created in this kind of contemporary world we live in where finally women's sport, especially on a professional level, is being um, not only welcomed and not only allowed, you know, in talking marks, but actually, you know, it's 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 huge. It's We're watching this kind of um, in real time. It feels strange to watch this moment in history, as I'm sure, you know, and you've talked about it on the podcast lots of times uh, this moment in history where it's not only it's a it's a force it's almost like a tsunami mm. but a, a good tsunami i suppose is that yes a- <laughs> yes that's a good way and, and kirby your piece is just palpable with passion it's amazing moment in time i mean not just writing an essay on it you've done an audio documentary as well you've got such a presence in this landscape but tell us a little bit about the 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 night the first night the opening of the aflw you know in 20 words or less no (laughs) um what's in this piece um i might start crying um i know it just felt like a night that just signaled a change I know in my life and I think in a lot of people's lives, it was just like you almost had a you almost had a permission, which is a strange thing to say, but I feel and I felt then and I still feel now like I have much a much deeper connection to the AFLW despite the fact that it's only two seasons old. You know, I've been a footy fan my entire life, a, a Bulldogs fan, so a lot of pain, but um, it, it just it feels so much deeper. And that night was that was the moment when it all started. The um, the relationship between storytelling and football for me, you know, is really a big part of my life, and, and it seems to be obviously for you. What what is it? Why do you have to bring these two loves together? And what what is it that that drives that? Do you think? I can't do it any other way. Um, I'm a footy romantic, so the stories to me are almost more important than the goals and the points and the wins and the losses, really. And as a writer, I, I can't approach it in any other way. When I write about footy, I have my heart on my sleeve or on my keypad or my hand or whatever <laughs> you want to say. That's that's just how I do it. And I think that's a way that people who are not necessarily fans of the sport can still connect because you can connect on that human level of, yeah, I can see that passion and I can see that heartache and that joy and that I can see all that even though I don't care very much for the actual sport. So, yeah, I, I, I can't separate them and I don't try. I love the the fact that you put poetry in your work as well is in the launch of the AFLW kindled something in me I can't quite name. I feel a connection to this competition that I've never felt with any other. The barriers that have existed between me and football do not exist here. When I sit in the stands or hang over the boundary fence, I am part of the action in a way I have never been before. See, I'm getting a little emotional. <laughs> but it is the poetry of it as well. Um, how do you sit there and think about describing what's going on? Is it something that uh, is just in your veins, just like the sport itself? I hope so. That would mean I would have a long career as a writer. Oh, you'll have a long career as a writer. Um, I, I think footy is quite a poetic sport. I, I think most sport is, is quite poetic when you sort of, you know, get rid of the, the thinking about stats and structures and all that kind of nonsense. There is a poetry to 
to sport because it's that it's the human body and it's the movement of the human body and and there's poetry in that. I don't think you can separate them. So why not bring them all together and have them together and enjoy it? And there's that fabulous drama too, inevitable. Like you know, sport is is it is a melodrama you know all these it's theater. so much it's, it's theater yeah it's amazing how it all comes together um so we're looking at AFL we've just had AFLW too and there was a whole lot of hope and a lot of promise in the beginning how are we traveling now do you think in terms of the AFLW and then perhaps that journey towards real equality do I even say oh that word gosh um it was a different experience this time around wasn't it I think it was. I think the first season we were so caught up in the just the actual fact that this was happening and we were watching it with our own eyes and how incredible that was. And I think we were getting to know all the characters. You know, we were all falling in love with Beck Goddard and Erin Phillips and, you know, I was falling in love with every Western Bulldogs player um, <laughs> and Brie Davey and Darcy Vessio and, you know, Sabrina Frederick-Traub and I can just keep naming them. So that first season was – there was something like that about it, you know, and – we maybe weren't um, delving beneath the surface too much. We were sort of just enjoying the moment and enjoying the games and the experience. And I think when the second season came round and there were still some issues with grounds and, and those sort of things. Lights. That we, lights, mm. lack of lights perhaps, that we sort of would hope had been ironed out by the second season. That sort of stuff hadn't happened and you started to feel a little bit uneasy Nothing had really been done pay-wise, like they were given a pay rise but then they were expected to work more hours so it's like that's not really a pay rise, is it? So that sort of started to weigh on my mind as a fan and, mm. yeah, that, that's that been kind of difficult because you still want to enjoy it. You want to get along to the games and I do. I absolutely did this season, especially because we won the premiership. <laughs> I had to <laughs> but, get that in. <laughs> but there's, there is now that sort of thinking about all those other elements that come come with it now and especially in the last few weeks with, you know, Bette Goddard and Michelle Cowan, that's been really frustrating to see that happen. So, yeah, there are there are elements of the AFLW now where it, it is getting a little bit difficult mm. and you sort of don't know what to do because I still love the competition and I'll still always be a member and a fan and get along to as many games as I can. Like that's not going to change but you just get frustrated with the administrative side of it and you just... Yeah, no kidding. And Sam, as an editor, do you feel the weight of the responsibility of telling these stories? Is that partly also what carried the book? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to assume, like, you know, an editor's job is to, you know, it's a midwifery kind of helping an, an, an author tell their story. But at the same time, especially this book was a curatorial editorship, uh, uh, editing, you know, job so that... Um, there was a responsibility to, and you're never going to get it right, but you do need to make sure, I mean, get it perfect, mm. or, or you're going to at least, um, whatever one person loves and someone else is not going to, or there's going to be gaps for some people. Um, and we didn't want to do a paint by numbers thing and tick boxes, but we did also want to make sure that we had a diverse range of sports, geographical locations, backgrounds, experiences, all those things that you really want to do when you want to represent uh you know, a time and place through multi, multiple narratives. But uh, we, um, yeah, especially, you know, and I helped edit some of these pieces as a, as, a, as a dude who, you know, played lots of sport and never had to come up against lack of access, has never had to worry about not seeing myself on, on a field or on a television. You know, and I edited several pieces, like one was very directly about 
a woman you know and her daughter and not seeing her her favorite football players in the newspaper yeah. or you know having the AFL season at least months away and there's 15 pages of, of AFL men's um and then we're in the middle of the AFLW and there's one page about that. And, you know, and the same thing, some great big stories happening in AFLW and it doesn't appear on the nightly news. And mm. so, so, you know, I have to, I have to constantly be aware of, um, when I'm making, you know, any editorial suggestions that it's coming from that place. And, but also you, you're a reader and you've got to trust your instincts and say, this is where it's lagging. This is where I think you can, um, this is where the story is. And, but we have some incredibly talented writers here with strong voices and, and, and uh, experience and knowledge that, you know, goes down deep, deep, deep that we didn't have to do much in the way of encouraging or, or, or tweaking in, in that sense. Yeah, it's, it's really it's such a strong collection. I'm really I'm chuffed to have been included but mm. also just blown away. Oh, yeah, this away. is a small note too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, blown away by the quality of the writing. It's just some absolutely outstanding pieces and also just the diversity of, as we talked about, the sort of subjects covered. So I really encourage people to get out there but I, I really was impressed with um, Rebecca Slater's piece on mm. the coach's hands, a woman's body, um, but also the um, Katarina Bryant talking about chess and mm-hmm. that's a whole kind of world I just haven't been privy to but has its own sort of issues around gender like so many others and it doesn't maybe that surprised me I'm not sure but um, heaps of them I could just name them all well, but mm. Faye Wiki getting a mention to do with sport as well <laughs> yeah, was right. awesome the yeah. poetry of it yeah. yeah so I'm big fan of the collection and I really encourage people to go out and have a look at it so it's balancing acts women in sport essays on power performance bodies and love I've seen that book going off like hotcakes. Mm. Mother's Day stocking fillers, buy it for your birthday, <laughs> give it to a friend. But the other thing is that um, since we've been talking about coaching on this show, I have to do a massive shout out. We have been getting so much correspondence from people who are out and coaching or they've got experiences where they put their hands up to be coaches and we are basically um, taking all of the information that you've been sending us about your experiences as coaches. Um, Mostly it's from our female listeners um, and their experiences and there are so many hurdles that we're seeing um, to women wanting to take on coaching roles and then hurdles once they're in those roles that's coming through that um, I have actually been collating this information and we're working on some ways to um, feed back into the system some ways that um, we can help with coaching pathways because we're not just a podcast <laughs> we do everything. as it turns out we do a bit of everything I am a word fan too and very excited that the footy almanac has a women's issue and it's got the beautiful Hannah Scott just after the dogs battled their way to premiership glory it's a uh, a cover that's been il- uh, illustrated by Kendra Hale, uh, which is great. And the editors are Stephanie Connell, John Harms, Casey Simons and Yvette Roby. And they have a little podcast as well. So if you check out the Footy Almanac stream, um, Casey Simons is interviewing Kendra. So it's really good. They've got a Women's Almanac Pie Night on May 30 at the <laughs> Fitzroy Bowls Club if you Delicious. are in Melbourne. If I am books. Yeah. Just try Delicious. keeping me away. Yeah, that's right. And the issue actually comes out in July. 
lie, but um, the Almanac do some great things. But this, the women's issue is always a good issue, so take a look. I love a women's issue. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, speaking of women's issues, there was an amazing article um, about Serena Williams. Um, that I was talking about it. Oh, someone snort. snorted. <laughs> Just you, my, my period. It's not an episode until someone snorts. It's not an episode until Alicia talks about her period. Um, Serena Williams' article coming out talking about her um, losing her ranking while she's been on maternity leave, Kate. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So she's obviously had some time off because she's had a um, daughter and um, the French Open um, is on and Wimbledon's coming up soon and there's been a bit of debate about what happens with a player who's had time out for maternity leave and then come back into the game. Essentially, um, I think she was the number one player in the world at the time that she had her daughter and then her ranking has fallen to 450 something um but the key thing is um, she is allowed to play in the French Open. They're, they've protected her ranking in that sense. She comes back in, they give her a sort of automatic card into the tournament, but she doesn't get a protected seeding. And so what that means is that in the first round, she might play the number one player in the world or the number two player in the world, and it makes it a lot more difficult um, for her Um that said, you know, I, th- I think she'll, I think and hope she'll still go she'll pretty well. Smash it, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's it's generated an in- interesting debate among other women on the tournament, and um, the tour is going to have a look at it, and I think needs to have a look at it. But it was interesting because it reminded me of another really excellent article that I saw this week, which we'll tweet out. It's by Megan Hustwaite, who um, does radio, uh, sports radio here in Melbourne, and it was about the Australian basketballer Abby Knight. I'm not sure if anyone saw this piece, but essentially a number of years ago, Abby um, had to become the custodian of her niece two days two days after she had been born for family reasons. Her sister couldn't look after the baby. So she got a phone call, flew to Darwin, um, took the baby and then has spent the last few years raising um, her niece as a single parent. And as she did that, she tried to maintain her career as a professional basketball player. And one of the things that she found is that at the time, the Basketball Australia policy didn't really help her. She wasn't allowed to um, have her daughter sit with her, 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 what is effectively her daughter, Mm. sit with her on flights when the team flew around Mm. to compete. Her daughter couldn't stay in the team hotel with her because it was considered to be disruptive to team preparation and focus. Um, As a result, she pulled out of the World Championships. They did win a bronze medal and she... um, didn't get the opportunity. That was only in 2014, by mm. the way. Um, and so Basketball Australia has now changed its policy. It says that they will look at things on a case-by-case basis, which still seems to me to be a bit vague and a bit imprecise. But um, both of those things just reminded me of how much work there still is to do for women who are professional athletes, who are parents or who become adopted parents or foster carers, whatever it might be, to ensure that their workplace rights are protected and their opportunities aren't curtailed. I was um, also watching um, some stand-up this week about, and it's so funny to see sports people and female stand-ups. Um, I was watching Ali. Ali Wong? Yeah, talking about... Um, Motherhood, and I feel like motherhood hasn't been talked about in these realms a lot because, I mean, there's an assumption that mothers always talk about motherhood, right? Mm. But I don't feel like professional sports people and comedians do that. I feel like they push it down and they try and hide it. And so for Serena Williams' um, competitors to come out and say, and I thought it was really telling that, you know, Sharapova and someone else, I can't remember who it was, came out and and said in support that it's extraordinary circumstances and it should be treated differently. And I really enjoyed that. I think that that's the next 
that's the next push for, you know, really trying to assist mums getting back into their careers. There was careers. a real sense of sisterhood that came through that article. Yeah, it was absolutely that's beautiful. Great. We love getting messages from all of you guys. We got an amazing uh, tweet this week and I put it on Instagram and we've retweeted it because it just means the world to us. I'm going to read it out to you in case anybody missed it. It's totally us showing off. It's <laughs> from Algie Alfie. It says... The Outer Sanctum taught me that there is a place for me, a non-binary queer immigrant in AFL. The way these women love the game without excusing or ignoring its flaws showed me that I can love it too. Thanks, friends. We just want to say thank you, Elgie Elfie, and thank you to everyone who's a part of the Outer Sanctum community because we do this bit of it, you do the other part of it, and it's you guys sharing your vulnerability and your share and sharing your stories and things that have been hard for you and things that have hurt you um, that makes this community a place where everybody is welcome and we're listening and we see you and we're really grateful that you listen to us and that you see us too. Thanks for joining us this week. Go, 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 go everybody! everybody. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.